the one and only slide up as well, please, Paul, in just a sec. Thank you very much. There it is. Look. Thank you very much. We're starting a new season today, new series of eight sermons running through January and February. We've called it Horizons. The reason we've called it that is about looking ahead, as much as we've already been doing uh, this morning during our time of praise, haven't we? Um, looking ahead to the horizon, what is God calling us to as Beacon Church, as a church? Not just for 2019, but beyond as well, just to lift our eyes to the horizon. What is God calling us to? What do we need to be pressing towards? Now, you might have noticed our new banners. Oh, no. Sorted out by our wonderful Ollie Mills at his big factory. Ollie Wonka and his printer factory. He's made some amazing banners for us on our current vision of family growth in invitation, which we shared with you before. We want to spend eight weeks reminding ourselves of why it's our vision and what God's calling us to as a family. We're going to look at family, what it really means to be family. We're going to start that today and then over the following two Sundays as well. Then we're going to spend two weeks looking at growth, about discipleship. What does it mean to encourage each other to grow? What does that even look like? And then we'll spend three weeks in February looking at the word invitation. What does it mean to be witnesses? What does evangelism mean? What are we all called to do as individuals and together as a church? What do family, growth and invitation really mean? We're going to press deeper into that. Today I'm going to just start just with a basic overview of the word family, looking at the truth of that and how that expands into the other two words, growth and invitation as well. But also then, before we carry on into those words, we're going to spend two more Sundays just digging deep, drilling deep, mining for nuggets in what family really look like, looks like, the practicalities of what that looks like amongst us as community. How do we put that into practice? And today, just an overview of the word family. Let's just talk about it as a subject. Fam family has been at the core of humanity ever since the beginning hasn't it, ever since the dawn of time. Family is about the now, but also about successive generations, about having children and more families to continue as well. Otherwise, we would not be here. The human race would have died out a long time ago. There are children in order to have successive generations for family to continue. You can't have successive generations without biological parents, for example. But you can't also have children growing up to be well-rounded adults, unless, in order to continue the legacy, unless you've got at least one parent who is providing, who is nurturing, caring, guiding, protecting, championing, disciplining, and so on. So those children then grow up into the best adults that they can be. You need people to parent them, don't you? And so family, in all its different human forms, whether it's nuclear families, single parent families, extended families, step families, blended families, etc., etc., foster families, adoptive families. Family is the basis of humanity being able to continue and to flourish. Do I need to step back a bit? Get a bit of feedback in. Let me come back here. We need family to be done well. We need parents to parent well in order for family to flourish. There is strength in one generation raising the next generation as a community effort. But, like I've already mentioned, it's not just about the kids, it's not just about the future, it's about the now, caring for each other now. There are, there are childless families, there are also uh, kind of communal living families where people who've got together, maybe they're close friends or specifically they've joined a community, where they become family in function, don't they? And in how they, there's unconditional love and how they 
so, uh, they bring service to one another and care for one another as family. They become family. That's what it is. So family ultimately, if you want a definition of what family is, family ultimately is a group of people who live with, who love, who serve, and who look out for one another. Family is a group of people who live with, love, serve, and look out for one another. That's family. Mutual bonding is found in three things that I'm going to work through in just a moment. Mutual bonding is found in a shared origin, usually. Usually by birth or by biology, but also can also be elsewhere. But also through shared values as a result and a shared purpose as a result of who you are together. And so when it comes to the church, for example, we see that church is not the bricks and mortar, Church is not the building. Church is the very community, the body of people who God has brought together by spiritual rebirth. We share an origin. And as we see in a moment, God's family is exactly what I've just described in the definition of family as well because we're a group of people whose bond is found in a shared origin but as a result we end up with shared values and a shared purpose. So let's just look at the first one. Look at shared DNA and then we'll look at the other two a little bit more briefly. Do you want to turn to John chapter 1? Just a few verses from there, from verse 9 we're just going to read. I'll read it out to you anyway. But John chapter 1. This is uh, Jesus' best friend. And he's introducing this amazing passage about Jesus coming into the world. He's God and he's coming into the world to rescue us. And from verse 9 he describes it like this. The true light, talking about Jesus, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, now if you, any of you in this room, if this is you, if you have received Jesus and believed in him for who he is, listen to what he's done for you. He gave you the right to become children of God. All who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So what John is expressing here is that God himself shone into the dark, in this dark world that we have screwed up. And by stepping into the flesh, by walking amongst us, as he did that, John says that actually the world didn't recognise him for who he was and that even his own blood relatives, the Jews, they failed to recognise him as their long-awaited Messiah, their great rescuer. But, thankfully, the good news is that anyone who has and does acknowledge Jesus to be God himself in the flesh, this amazing thing happens. As a result of that, we get reborn we become members of his royal family. That's mind-blowing. We become members of Jesus' own royal family. And John explains how. He lists the thing, things that it doesn't happen by, and he describes how it does happen. He says it doesn't happen by being born of blood. What he's saying is, your parents don't make a jot of difference to your standing before God. Who your parents... Do you realise who my father is? Makes no difference. Who your parents, who your human relatives, who your bloodline is, that can't make you right before God. 
But then he says, but it's not through those who are born of the will. That doesn't happen as well. So you can't save yourself either. How much you read the Bible does not save you. Reading the Bible is a good thing. It's about going deeper in relationship. But it doesn't save you in the first place. How much you read your Bible compared to someone else makes no difference to your salvation. How much you pray doesn't make a difference to your salvation. That's not the bedrock of how you're saved in the first place. How much you listen to Christian music doesn't make a difference to your salvation. Baptism doesn't save you. We were talking about that a few weeks ago, weren't we? Baptism is a demonstration of what's happened on the inside. It doesn't save you. It's representative. Keeping to the rules, being nice, and so on, does not save you. But then he says, nor the will, not just the will of the flesh, but nor the will of man. Other people can't save you either. It's fascinating. Studies say that we are the average of the five people we hang out with most. Which is a very good thing to go away and have a little think about who you hang out with. What do I look like really? But hanging out with the, most, the five most amazing people on the planet will not give you a leg to stand on before the holy living God. Makes no difference. Priests can't save you. Saints can't save you. Gurus can't save you. Self-help experts can't save you. Pastors can't save you. Don't rely on me, thankfully. But he does say how we do get saved. We're not saved by blood, not saved by our own will or other people's will. We are saved of God. Without God's help, the Bible says we are dead to him. What does that really mean? What does that even mean? Picture a cabbage in a field. That cabbage, that cabbage is alive, isn't it? Until you cut it, take it home, chop it up, boil it. Until then, it's alive. It's in the ground and it's alive. But it can't play with a ball of string. You just look at it thinking it's a small relative or something. It won't look because it hasn't got eyes. A cabbage is alive but it's dead to the world of living where you get to play with the ball of string. Does that make sense? And yet a kitten can play with the ball of string. It's alive to that way of living, that realm of living. But a kitten can't write poetry. It's dead to that realm of living. And yet us humans, we can write poetry and we can enjoy comedy and cook food and fix cars. We're alive in that sense in many different ways. And yet, we are dead to God unless we get reborn into that new realm of life as well. That's what it means. You think, well, but I'm alive, I'm not dead. Yes, you're alive in one physical sense, but to be alive spiritually in a whole other realm that you are otherwise removed from, that's what he's talking about here. And yet God, therefore, is the only one with the authority and the ability to rebirth us into that whole new realm of life, of living. And therefore, as a result, actually, to call us his children. Only God can do that. Because of Jesus, God's own son and his work, anyone who believes in him becomes God's kid. That's you, that's who you are, you're God's kid. The God who didn't just create the universe, he's bigger than the universe. We keep hearing about, was it I heard yesterday that how many billion stars or galaxies they used to think they found, they now found actually is a trillion more or something, and actually the number we thought that, that existed is closer to zero than it is closer to the actual... It's like, pew. The universe is ridiculously big, and yet God is bigger than that. And he calls us, through Jesus, 
his kids. We're his children. Only God can make that possible. Only God can perform such a cosmic feat. And so, truly transformed followers of Jesus, Christians, we are God's children in truth, not just in picture language. And so that's where this, the idea of church being like family, that is just so fundamentally wrong. We are not like family. We are family. We share a spiritual new DNA. God is literally our father. Jesus is literally our big brother. We are literally brothers and sisters. It's not just a nice term for each other. The difficult thing then is learning how to live like it. That's the fun bit, isn't it? And this is where it comes to shared values. Because of our new birth, our shared DNA, we have, should have, recognised that we have shared values. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 50. Matthew 12, verse 50. Right at the end. Jesus says, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is why we put in here it's not just being a family of friends, this is a family of Jesus followers, is what he put into our vision statement. To follow Jesus and to do his will, to be obedient, to follow the will of his Father. He says, you are my brothers and my sisters, you're my mum and so on. And what he's explaining is that family is a truth. And we all have, we all have or have had parents, otherwise we wouldn't be here. And we may have had siblings or have siblings right now. We all have some essence of family, but lost me a bit. But there is a choice for each member of each family to decide to, to, to live, to act for family rather than against it. There is a choice involved. You can be a member of a family, you can choose to act for or against it, though, can't you? There are biological families which don't act like it. There can be strife, there can be resentment, there can be ignorance, there can be utter neglect, there can be abuse. And yet it can also be other things that do nurture together, that are considering, that are accepting, that are encouraging. There is a choice involved for each individual to play their part in the right way. And actually, it's the same thing for us as church. If we are family, we still have a choice to make. A choice between asking yourself, what do I get out of this? Or how can I contribute? Two very, very, very different things. What do I get out of this? How can I contribute? That's the choice we get to make. One of them eats away at family, the other one feeds it. What's my attitude to this? How do I approach church? Now, you would hope that if we are genuinely reborn, we genuinely have a new nature, you'd hope that new nature would therefore be for family rather than against it. Okay, I get that. And I, I, I would say that one thing we need to be aware of. While it, we may not be talking about outright hostility against church, in which case I'll probably question, are you really reborn? But actually, what can be just as dangerous and we can miss is apathy. Apathy can eat away at family because we're not making the choice to contribute, to invest, to play our part, to work towards encouraging more of family life. General apathy can be just as much an enemy as outright hostility is to family life. We need to remember that. But because of its sheer nature... We can forget it, get lazy, and not spot it. 
Apathy is very dangerous. It takes deliberate energy to roll our sleeves up. It takes a deliberate choice to speak up when we need to, or to encourage when we need to, or to raise concerns sensitively when we need to. Not just to raise concerns, to do them sensitively. That takes effort to think how you're going to word it. It takes effort. It takes a decision to seek challenge, not just to challenge others, but to seek challenge for yourself. That takes an effort to ask for it, doesn't it? And it takes effort to decide to invest in others as well. It always takes a choice. And that's why discipleship, when it comes to growth, doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't just happen by default, actually. Because when you look at the words that Jesus uses, Matthew 28, some of his parting words to his disciples, he says, go and make disciples. He doesn't say, you'll be making disciples anyway, enjoy the ride, it'll be alright. He doesn't. He has to say, go and do it. There's got to be a choice and a deliberation involved because he knows how easily we can take our foot off the pedal. No, I've done it. I know how easily I can. As his family, we have a shared value of growing together, growth, discipleship, that he's asked us to treasure. Growing in numbers, but also growing in depth. It takes commitment. Growing in depth together and growing in depth deeper into him as well. And so these values of growth and invitation I'll talk about in a minute, they spring naturally from that of family. This is who we are, therefore this is a shared value. This is something Jesus has asked us to treasure. We're talking about that a lot more in coming weeks, but in Acts chapter 2, I haven't got time, Acts chapter 2, these are all, I'm sure, familiar verses or passages to many of you, but they're always good ones to be reminded of, aren't they? Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Just read through these five or six verses. This is just as the church has really exploded from the hundreds into the thousands in the very, very early days. And they, the church, they devoted themselves, Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came on every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. There's a whole list there that we could go through. I know Martin Gibson did, was it last year or the year before? Martin Gibson visited and he worked through that bit by bit in that passage. It'll be on our website if you want to listen to it. There's so much in there. They're one-anothering, they're giving, they're learning together, they're praying together. There's, there's, a, there's a challenge and an encouragement and a support. There's family life. You see so many elements of family life in there. All of that is just the direct result of this inner burning to see Jesus' church stronger and healthier and more beautiful because of who he is what he's done for them, what he's called them into, and they're just rising to it. It takes choice, though, and it takes effort. There is a hunger born out of an appreciation of what Jesus has done for them, and we, I trust, should have the same hunger. And if we don't, we need to press deeper into him. And as we press deeper into him, we'll press deeper into church, I can guarantee it. From time to time, it does take choice, since we are human. And the decision to grab a fresh hold of what we value 
and to appreciate that we each have a part to play in keeping it so precious, that takes effort, that will always pay off. So just one question I'm just going to ask at this moment. Here's a question for us. While we are learning to be family, are we ensuring we are all seeking to grow ourselves and are we seeking to invest in others? Simple question, but always a good one to ask. While we are learning to be family, are we ensuring that we are all seeking to grow ourselves and seeking to invest in others, encouraging each other to grow as well? I'll leave that with you. That's our shared values, including the basic value of discipleship, growth. So family and growth, what about invitation? Our shared purpose. Acts chapter 1, a couple of chapters earlier. Again, some more parting words that Jesus has for his people. He says to his disciples, he says, <coughs> Acts 1 verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. As his family, we have got a job to do. It's the family business. Jesus tells us we are his witnesses. We've got to go out and tell the world. This is not a treasure to keep to ourselves, it's one to share with everyone else around us who don't have it yet. Jesus tells us we are his witnesses, which does, however, mean that wherever you are, at any given time, as Christians, you are being a witness, whether you like it or not. The question is, is it a good one or a not so good one? We are being a witness. But as a family, we're also, it's not just about us being, we often read that as I'm a witness in the workplace and I'm a witness with my neighbour and I'm a witness in my home and I'm a witness in the shops. That's right, but it doesn't just stop there. Because the point is, as a family, we're also a witness for him in how we do family life together, how we do it collectively, how we care for one another, how we share, how we protect, how we look out for one another, and so on. John chapter 13, if you don't mind flicking about. John chapter 13. It's a famous commandment that Jesus shares, but sometimes the bit at the end just gets missed. It's more evangelistic than we realise. John 13, verse 34. Jesus says to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. That's one we know. But he carries on and he says, by this... All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So by doing this, this is a shop window for people to see that you're mine. It's not just for you, it's for others to see as well. Our one anothering as a church family is a witness in and of itself. And I have, just to encourage you, I have heard it mentioned by others about Beacon, about how we one another, and people spot it. I was talking to my neighbour on Saturday night, where were we? Saturday night? Friday night, whenever. And I, I popped out with him into town for a little bit before we came back to the house, and we were just talking about what was going on in church. And it's, it's just, he was amazed about the one anothering. And it's a witness, just how we do that. Others see it as well. It's a witness for God's glory and for what he's doing amongst us. It's, it's not just about being individual witnesses, which is important, and we will talk about in a few weeks' time. It's about our collective witness as well as his people. So a couple more questions to ask. While we're learning to be family, the questions need to be, are we ensuring 
we are letting the world see what God is doing amongst us, there needs to be some kind of shop window. We can keep it to ourselves and keep it private. We need to be, without being proud, oh, look at us, but we need to just be open about who we are. Where are you going? I'm off to take a meal to my friend who's just had a baby or wherever it be. Just, just find opportunities just to be open about it. It's just be ourselves. Wear our hearts and our sleeves. Are we ensuring we are letting the world see what God is doing amongst us? And are we ensuring we are not letting our main purpose drift off our radar? The family business of sharing Jesus with others. And as part of that, how often do we seek the means to build bridges with those yet to know him? How often are we seeking to build relationships with our neighbours, with our workmates? Yes, to become friends, but not to stay there either. Not as projects, as friends, but actually we want to share Jesus with them as well. We don't want to just enjoy their company. We want to enjoy them coming to meet with him as well, don't we? Surely. How often do we seek the means to build bridges with those yet to know him? I think I'll just finish here I think we're just uh, I don't want to dwell too much on what other people will be preaching on in a few weeks time but I just trust that helps realize that this amazing truth of who we are as God's family but it bears a lot more weight in what we need to value what we need to press into what we need to be aiming for when it comes to family growth and invitation because in the church we share a common DNA we are family by birth and we share common values most notably discipleship growth together and we share a common purpose, that of invitation. We've got a job to do, and the good news of Jesus needs to remain at the centre of family. Because if we don't embrace these things, we've lost it. It's the basic truth, isn't it? If we don't embrace each other as precisely that, as family, if instead we treat each other as acquaintances, or someone to merely tolerate, or even actually if we just treat each other as friends, we've lost it because we're more than that. We're brothers and sisters and we need to remember that's what we are. Because otherwise we will just lose the vital heartbeat of who God intends us to be and what exactly it is he's brought us into. We are more than friends. We often talk about, I'm a friend at church. No, that's my brother, that's my sister. We need to keep this at the forefront of our minds. It makes all the world a difference. If we don't embrace that, we lose a vital heartbeat there. If we don't embrace our shared value of spurring one another on, then we lose everything that Jesus freed us for, to be bearing fruit, to be bringing in glory, to be enjoying life to its fullest. We lose that unless we press into encouraging each other to grow. And then if we don't embrace our shared purpose of inviting others to meet Jesus for themselves as well, we want this family to grow, don't we? Not because it's about numbers and us looking good, it's because they don't know him yet. Surely that should be the main drive. We want them to have what we've got. Because if we don't embrace that shared purpose of invitation, of introducing other people to Jesus, then we're just being spoilt rich kids. Keeping it for ourselves, aren't we? Instead of being, the, we should be the most generous people on this planet. Desperate for people to have what we have. We've got to, be, we've got to wake up to the, how often am I doing that? How often am I even thinking about that? There's a wonderful picture that actually I ended up reading um, earlier from Revelation 5, which describes this whole mass of people saved, and it's from every tribe and tongue and nation. That's true family. How many of us would know and hang out with each other if it wasn't for Jesus? Think about it. It's multicoloured. It's brilliant. We should embrace this. 
We are brothers and sisters in Jesus and we are also radically different and it's brilliant. Let's embrace that and let the world see God's amazing glory as a result. Would you like to stand with me? I'm just going to pray.